thousands of kidney patients in the United States start dialysis without first being told about kidney transplants or that the procedure would be cheaper and lead to longer lives. The newspaper reviewed records from the United States renal data system and they found that some patients spent five years on dialysis before being put on the kidney transplant list. back to Donor Diaries. I'm your host, Lori Lee, and I thank you for tuning into episode two. Today, I want to jump right in and talk a little bit about dialysis. When the kidneys are no longer working effectively, waste products and fluid build up in your blood. Dialysis is a process that removes the fluid in the waste products, kind of like a water filter would. People who are on dialysis have to get hooked up to a machine three times a week for several hours each time to get their blood cleaned. Dialysis is tiring. It's time-consuming, like a second job. And as you can imagine, it negatively impacts your quality of life, even though you're reliant on it to keep you alive. Short of a kidney transplant, dialysis is the only life-preserving option for people with end-stage renal disease. But the thing is, it's not a cure. It just buys you time. Right now, there's over a half a million Americans on dialysis, Every year, more than 100,000 Americans start dialysis, and sadly, one in four of them will die in their first year of dialysis. This fatality rate is one of the worst in the industrialized world. If you live in Japan or France or Italy, your outlook to stay alive on dialysis longer is better than it is here in the States. That's because we have a broken system and we can do better and we absolutely need to do better. So who pays for all of this? Taxpayers spend more than $20 billion a year to care for those on dialysis, which is about $77,000 per patient per year. That's a lot of money. That's actually 1% of the entire federal budget going towards treating end-stage renal disease. To put that in perspective, the Department of Education gets 2% of the entire federal budget. Two companies, DeVita and Fresenius, are the Coke and Pepsi of the dialysis world. The pre-tax operating profit of these companies is in the billions, with a B. This creates a conflict of interest because informing patients of transplant, in theory, drives their customer base away. The bottom line? Transplant allows people to live longer lives, and it's a fraction of the cost of dialysis. A transplant pays for itself after two years. Because of this, every dialysis patient needs to be informed about this amazing possibility. It used to be that dialysis centers just had to check a little box on a form to indicate that a patient had been informed about their option of transplant. Just check a little box. Yes, we informed them. Today, dialysis centers are required by law to do a better job of informing their patients about transplant. The problem I just described, though, is by no means solved. 
It's still a broken system. But now we have people outside of the dialysis center making sure that patients do know and understand that kidney transplant is an option for them. My guest, Doug Penrod, is one of those guys. He's a senior transplant nurse at Northwestern, and one of his many responsibilities in the transplant world is reaching these dialysis patients to inform them of their option to get a transplant. He's kind of a big deal at Northwestern, and when I walk around the hospital with them, it's apparent that everybody knows and loves Doug, including me. Hi, Doug, and welcome. Hi, Lori. Nice to be here today. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do at Northwestern? I'm a senior transplant nurse coordinator. I've been at Northwestern now 32 years. I've been a nurse for 40. Uh, or no, excuse me, 30 years at Northwestern, 33 in transplant. Wow. And 40 years as a nurse. And uh, I do patient professional education. I do outreach. I do marketing. And I run six satellite clinics for pre-kidney transplant patients where I see patients with a nephrologist. Uh, four in Illinois and two in Indiana. Wow, um, so you're traveling all over the place. I'm traveling. Yeah, that's what I do. I'm a traveling salesman. I work out of my car. <laughs> and you're going to dialysis centers. Also, but that's been on hold now because of the pandemic for a year. So we've gone to a virtual format, which uh, we are supplying the dialysis units with in both a DVD format and a URL that they their patients can go online and learn about transplant. So it's more or less a much shortened version of our education that we would normally use to educate patients okay. who come in for an evaluation. This is for the dialysis unit population. And if the unit needs more DVDs, we'll give them more DVDs so they can give them to patients to take home who don't have internet access but do have a DVD player. Doug, if you do a quick Google search, you see just a ton of stuff about controversy surrounding the management of dialysis in the United States. Are patients being informed of their option to transplant now? Well, now that's changed, but you're quite right. And I said the reason we, back in the day, never got referrals from nephrologists or they wouldn't even tell people about transplant was money. At least to my mind, it was. Uh, some doctors were very good at referring for transplant because they realized the benefit. But others, forget it. You know, and they weren't required by name, wouldn't even tell them about it or talk to them about their options. In other words, they'd be on dialysis long before they ever heard about transplant. Okay. Now, and it's only been in the last couple of years, CMS has put on a huge push and threatened dialysis units if they didn't have a comprehensive plan and every single patient had been, a, you know, talked to about transplant, that transplant centers were involved with this, that they knew what were going on with their patients. And now I'm getting, you know, all these calls from social workers wanting to know what's going on with this patient, what's going on with that patient, because they have to report. Uh. And if it affects their bottom line, then they're going to do it. But right now, uh, patients are being much better informed, much, much better than they ever were about transplant. And we're seeing a lot more come to us before they need to go on dialysis. Can you tell me a little bit about somebody who's on dialysis? Like what segment of the population is on dialysis and what does their outlook look like? 
Well, the leading cause of kidney failure right now is type 2 diabetes, followed by hypertension. And then there's a whole bunch of autoimmune diseases, which also cause uh, kidney disease that we see. But the big thing has been is the fact that because we have so many diabetics with high blood pressure, there are a lot more comorbidities that are coming to transplant. So the patients are sicker, mm. you might say, than what we previously saw. You also need to know that the largest age group going on the dialysis is 65 and up. Mm-hmm. They're my group, <laughs> the boomers. <laughs> and uh, most all of them are overweight uh, with type 2 diabetes, which is, in other words, metabolic syndrome Mm -hmm. is what's causing this. And it affects their kidneys, especially the diabetes. But with that comes vascular disease, cardiac disease, all sorts of other things which increase their risk then. A standard type of orders for these patients would be in terms of evaluation would be heavy on cardiac. So somebody who's on dialysis, they're in kidney failure. Mm-hmm. They can't. They they don't have the capacity to clean their blood with their right. remaining kidney function, or some probably have no kidney function. How does dialysis help them live longer? Can you explain? Dialysis is life saving. Quite frankly, prior to it being available to everyone, there were huge waiting lists, and people died all the time from end stage renal disease. And consequently, there were things called God committees that were formed. We have to pause for a moment so I can tell you about what I found when I went down the God committee wormhole and couldn't stop. God committees, which were also called death panels, were formed in 1961 when the number of people who needed dialysis was greater than the number of dialysis machines that existed. There wasn't enough for everybody, so they had to put a system in place to pick and choose who got dialysis and who just died. I'm going to play a quick clip about death committees, and when you listen, keep in mind that this is in 1961 during the Civil Rights era. This was two years prior to Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Many schools were still segregated in the South, and there were still white beaches and black beaches. This is a time when women couldn't be on a jury and couldn't have a credit card unless they were married and their husband co-signed. This is important context when you think about who got dialysis, who didn't get dialysis, and who it was that was choosing. Step number four, the last step in the screening process. The applicant must be approved by a jury of his peers. These are volunteers, anonymous volunteers who will give the final yes or no to the applicant based on his medical report, his psychological report, his financial report, and on his record as a member of this community, on his record as a responsible human being. In a word, is he worth saving? For the cold hard fact of the matter is, there are just so many places available on the kidney machine, and there are more applicants than places. Somebody has got to be left out, and somebody has got to decide who shall live and who shall die. That's a harsh reality, and it was only 50 years ago. While there are some communities that don't have easy access to dialysis centers, I have 15 centers within 20 miles of my house. That's a stark contrast to the shortage of dialysis facilities that we once had. 
Can we switch gears here for a second? Oh, absolutely. All right. So this is something I haven't mentioned yet, but on every episode, I'm going to have um, either a donor telling a story or mm-hmm. an expert. And you're what we call a donor diaries double dipper. Okay. Because you are, in fact, a living donor. Yes, I am. What year did you donate? I donated uh, April the 3rd, 2008 in a four-way paired domino kidney exchange. Okay, so you were in the transplant field for a very long time before you decided to donate. Yes. So were you just shopping for the right recipient for 25 years or what? Tell me, tell me a little bit about, about that experience and who got your kidney? Okay. Originally I was not in a parrot exchange. Okay. Originally I was donating to one of my patients. I had known him for probably close to 30 years, lived like six blocks from me. So he was a but, patient, but a guy you saw in the in the hood. Right. We we go out to dinner. Mm, okay. So okay. friend. Yeah, friend. And he was older. Mm-hmm. And his daughter was my best friend, and her oldest child was my godchild. So you know, I knew this family really well. And matter of fact, I had been his coordinator, and his daughter, I was her coordinator too back in the day in two thousand when he got a transplant from her. And she donated to him. Okay. And he did well for about seven years. And then he got a new, he got something called CAN, chronic allograft nephropathy, which is like a post-transplant disease of a type. And they tried and they couldn't get it reversed. And lo and behold, he lost his kidney and was back on dialysis. Oh, that's sad. And I said, oh, Frank, I'll donate to you. So we went through a lengthy evaluation because he was older, had some cardiac issues, starting about in May, I want to say, 2007. We finally got a date late August for September, like the 21st, to go through the get transplanted, do the donation and everything. Well, a month or three weeks before that, we came in for our final go around. Uh, one of our physician assistants took a close look at my recipient and went, mm, there's some things here I'm not real happy about. Can we do this, this, and this? And we did. And lo and behold, it turned out he was no longer a candidate for oh. transplant. Not only that, it turned out he had cancer. Oh, no. Yes. He had to have major surgery. And he did okay, uh, but he had recurrent disease three years later. Uh, So if we'd have transplanted him, he'd have been dead in six months. Wow. Because of the immunosuppression. So anyway, so I'm left without someone to donate to. They've just spent however much money, fifteen, eighteen thousand, I don't know what it cost on me. But I was revved to donate. So I went to my transplant nephrologist and I said, John, find me somebody to donate to. Well, John Friedewald, who is the medical director of the kidney transplant program there, uh, was very smart. Uh, He said, Doug, you're a blood group O, so you can donate to anybody. Now, normally, we would go to the top of our O blood list here and just donate to the first person you're compatible with with the most waiting time. But he said, I think this we could work you into a kidney pair donation as a blood group O to start the whole thing because you could donate to anybody. So you have unicorn blood. So type O is the, the, the best type of blood right. to be if you want right. to donate. If you want to donate. 
if you want to get one, it's the worst. It's the worst. Isn't that amazing? You can only get a no. It took about six months to put this whole thing together because at that time, kidney bear donation was relatively new. I mean, we had only started it in 2006. And John had this big one that he wanted to do big bite involved eight patients. Since then, we've done one involving 10, involving 12, you know, so. And that's just on the recipient side. Mm -hmm. So in other words, double that number is how many patients were involved. He tells me, I think late February, early March, here was his idea that we had a four-way and I would be starting the whole thing off. I would donate to one person, they would donate to another, whose donor would donate to another recipient, and finally, the last recipient matched up with somebody who had been on the waiting list for eight years and couldn't find a match, yet this person matched them. So that person wins the lotto. I mean, everybody involved in this chain wins. Right. Right, but the guy that has been waiting eight years and has never been able to find a match. Actually, I think this is interesting, and uh, I always like to point out, because uh, short and Asian, we covered about all the races you could. I donated to an Hispanic woman whose daughter donated to a Lebanese man, whose son donated to an Indian boy, whose mother donated to an African-American. Wow. Wow, we're all one, aren't we? Yeah. As I like to tell my patients, look, when we've got you on the operating table and we open you up, you all look the same inside. Yep. <laughs> Can't tell any difference when you're all draped. Doesn't matter what color <laughs> you are, as long as your your organs have got the right colors. Yeah. To so what was your donation experience like? Oh, it was great. Now, I've had other surgeries. I had cancer surgery in 2016, robotically done, a radical prostatectomy. And I would have given up another kidney if they could have taken that and cured me of the cancer. Because it was so easy. It was so easy for me, you know, and I'm older. So I've been through a lot of So this was just another day for you. This was just another day. I went in probably as relaxed as I've ever been. Knowing that I was in capable hands, I actually got to pick my. Surgeon. I was just going to ask: Did you did you pick a friend to I do the surgery? The surgeon. I picked the surgeon. She was who I wanted to do it. I trusted her, and I knew her techniques were very good. And so she did my surgery, and I would got back to the room. I don't know, one or two o'clock in the afternoon after being in recovery, and within an hour they had me up walking around with my. IV in my Foley bag, okay, and uh, I walked the floor till 10 o'clock at night, and I got two thumbnail size incisions in my abdomen, which I can't find anymore, Mm -hmm. but I got a nice looking four inch one here at the belt line, which I can still see if I pull up my gut, Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, (laughs) I did it on a Thursday, I was home on Friday afternoon, okay, and walking my dogs. And I never took my narco, my uh, pain medication. Weren't you in pain? I took extra strength Tylenol. That's all I needed. Amazing. Yeah, that's all I took, extra strength Tylenol. Uh, But no, I never took mine. And I didn't need to, really. And so I was back to work in two weeks, just with a 10-pound weight restriction. I felt fine. A month later, it's like it never happened. But this is not what everybody experiences. I'll be quite honest with you. Matter of fact, I might be somewhat the rarity. 
Now, I don't know how your experience was with it. I said, pass the Vicodin, please. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike Abacasa said, you know, old ladies can get addicted to this inside a week, so you got to be careful. Right. But the Tylenol didn't touch it. See, that's what I mean. Everybody's mm-hmm. different. Everybody is different. And therefore, the responses are going to be different either due to physically or mentally, I think. Though the thought did go through my mind, there's never been a donor death at Northwestern, but they've never done one of their own before. Either. I know. That would be like the worst headline <laughs> yes, ever. Northwestern yes. kills one of their own. That's the only thing that passed through my mind. I completely <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it passed through thought. other people's <laughs> yeah. mind, too. Like, we cannot screw this one yeah. up. <laughs> it's really important to me that this podcast is not about talking people into donating right. organs. Um, I want to make it clear that I don't think that um, everybody can donate a kidney or liver or something else, or even if they can, that they should. Can you speak to that a little bit? And can you tell me about who shouldn't be considering donating a kidney? Okay, number one, I'm, and this is me, the legal age for donation for living donors is 18. I'm in favor of seeing that raised to 25. Really? Yeah. Because your brain's not done developing. Until you got it. Yeah. You got it. And we've talked about this in my in my ethics uh, group that I belong to. And we've all kind of come to conclusion that we feel 18 is too young. Donors can be their own worst enemies, which is why we have an independent donor advocate team to help protect the donors from themselves. Mm. The other thing, and the most important thing, I tell prospective donors is, regardless of what their situation is, who they're donating to or whatever, you need to have it worked out in your mind why you are really doing this. And if there is some secondary gain somewhere in your head, you better find it and get rid of it because it's not going to be met. So what would a secondary gain example be? Oh, I got great ones. A mom and son who I got to know very well back in the day when I was doing both donor and recipient. They had been estranged, but we're trying to get it back together. Yeah. Mom donated to son thinking that this would restore their relationship. Did not. Did not. But that was mom's last grasp effort. Yeah. That's really complicated. For doing this. Yes. And you can't always determine that when you're doing, you know, we're not putting these people on the couch for 12 sessions, <laughs> you know, before they donate to get to their real things they're trying to gain from this. I mean, we just don't do that. We take it that are good people out there like you and me who will just donate. So those are kind of crazy things we see. Yeah. So th- there have been some really interesting cases, you know, that, uh, We've discussed in ethics and that kind of stuff about what do you do? Okay, if you don't want to be a living donor, that's fine. That's your decision to make. But please sign up in your state registry to be a deceased donor. Okay? Yep. But at least when you die, give up your organs, even if it's just corneas and other tissues. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
giving the gift of sight sometimes is a life changer for a person. Anyway. Doug, you truly lead by example. You know, when somebody like me goes into a hospital setting and can see that someone on the transplant team is a donor, it's really reassuring and really meaningful. You're helping shift societal beliefs about transplant. Keep up the important work, buddy. Well, that was a really fun interview. Thank well, you. Well, good. I enjoyed it. Good. Too. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. And um, I hope to have you again as a guest in the future, maybe in season two. That's fine. Whenever. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. That was fun. Yeah, it was. I have exciting news to share. It's about Jana and Mary. Mary successfully donated her kidney to Jana on Monday, June 28th. Now, just three short days later, both are at home recovering. We'll catch up with them soon. Congrats, Jana and Mary. Join us for our next episode with two-time kidney recipient Harvey Mysell, founder of Living Kidney Donor Network. This is Lori Lee. I am a living kidney donor and the creator of Donor Diaries with Maitre River Productions, produced by Rob and Jeff Lee. For more information about Donor Diaries, visit DonorDiaries.com. To sign up to be an organ donor when you die, make sure you're on the National Registry by signing up at organdonor.gov. And be sure to let your family know your wishes. For more information about living kidney donation, visit nkdo.org. And if you like today's podcast, please make sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, so as we drop episodes, you will see them. Like and share. Spread the love.